Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion, and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine the show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience of Smith Weekly, including Dale H., Andrew C., Jonas Z., and Enoch S. Ted O'Connor has joined us on the show today. Ted is Technical Advisor and Director at Plateau Energy Metals, a lithium uranium development company advancing the Falchani and Macusani projects in southern Peru. The company is listed on the Toronto Venture Exchange under the symbol PLU and also on the US OTC markets under the symbol PLUUF. Mr. O'Connor, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. This is, uh, this is a wonderful opportunity. Well, Ted, uh, you're new to the show. Of course, Alex has been on a couple times, but uh, you've, you've had a long history in the uranium business. Maybe talk about your background, talk about your time at Cameco and your thoughts on the uranium market at this point in time. Yeah, so I, uh, I've got about 30 years of uh, geological uh, experience and, and 25 of that has been in, in uranium specifically. Um, I spent 20 years with Cameco uh, as an exploration geologist and then uh, ended up as director of corporate development. And throughout that 20 years, I had the opportunity to uh, review projects on a global basis, trying to uh, get Cameco outside of Saskatchewan and uh, into uh, alternate uranium models in different jurisdictions. So my familiarity with Makassani uh, region in Peru stems from, from that initial work. I first went down there in 2005 and saw the rocks for the first time and got Cameco involved. So Cameco is one of the predecessors, uh, owners of, of some of the Makassani land that Plateau Energy Metals has right now. So I'm I have a global experience in uranium and have settled on on this as one of the top undeveloped projects in, in the world. And Ted, talk about that for a moment, you know, for you to be able to get, uh, you know, Cameco interested in, in looking at a new jurisdiction for uranium like Peru, maybe just speak to, to how that looks as far as the quality of the asset at Macusani. So uh, we, we first went down there with a, with a volcanic hosted uranium model. Uh, in mind, and um, this would be looking for things like the biggest uh, uranium deposit producer in Russia, Stroltsovskoy, it's called. And this thing produces uh, has produced for for 40 years, and well over 200 million pounds of uranium came out of it. So we were looking for large, low-grade deposits. Once the price, uranium price, increased from the seven dollars and fifty cents in uh, in 1998 uh, it started to creep up and and other models started to look interesting so we went to peru myself and another fellow and saw the rocks and and got cameco interested in partnering with a junior who had the land and spent uh five years uh looking for and finding uranium and, and investing in the country but the whole Makassani Plateau region was essentially a patchwork of about five or six different junior companies looking in the same rocks for the same thing, but in a real segmented way. And over the, the last piece of the puzzle was 
when I left Cameco, uh, it was a, in a post-Fukushima uh, world, and um, they wanted to divest because on their land, it was fairly evident that they wouldn't get to a big enough threshold for, for Cameco to, uh, to look at a, a new jurisdiction and a new processing facility. And at the time, the other juniors weren't, they, they only had, uh, well, they had far less uranium uh, on the book, so to speak. So uh, at that point, it was about 40 million pounds of uranium uh, known on the plateau. But one of the predecessors to Plateau Energy Metals, Makassani Yellowcake, uh, was drilling with multiple drills. And lo and behold, after a year, they, they ended up uh, with something on the order of 60 million pounds. So the last piece of the puzzle was getting Cameco's former land into what is now Plateau Energy Metals. And one plus one was actually more than two. What started off as about 60 million pounds of resources on Makassani side and Cameco had 34 million pounds. Uh, we put them together and got rid of the borders because geology doesn't respect uh, land borders. And we ended up with our current resource of about 124 million pounds of uranium. So what makes this area unique is that the rocks are quite unique volcanic rocks. They're only 7 million years old, uh, yet the uranium is all less than 1 million years old. So we went down there with a volcanic-related uh, uranium model in mind, and through good science and observation, we were able to understand that the uranium has nothing to do with volcanic processes. It's a unique style of uranium deposit that's really not known anywhere else in the, in the world um, because the uranium is, is 1 million years old to 40,000 years old, so quite recently remobilized. And we were able to, uh, to pin it down to uh, groundwater, melting glacial waters that uh, uh, in the last million years plus to present, um, circulated uranium from within these rich, uranium-rich volcanic rocks and putting them into our deposits as layers and fracture coatings um, of, of what we call hexavalent uranium minerals. Um, so the deposits were formed in this cold, high altitude setting that we're in right now, but without any, uh, not much energy to get this uranium moved around and put where we are. So they're in a near surface environment, which is important for a few reasons, but it's easier to find because it's shallower, it's less costly, plus we can exploit them by open pit methods. And because the cold melting glacial waters move this uranium around, it doesn't take much to get the uranium back out of these rocks. So it has really positive implications for the processing. So we have extremely low cost potential production. We've done a PEA in 2016 that shows we can produce uranium for $17.28 a pound. And this is because of the, the really inexpensive processing. Yeah, it sounds good, Ted. And I think that really points to a, a very unique project into a good market that uh, obviously has a little higher price and that also uh, capital is abundant to obtain and, and develop out these projects. 
also in a country that is working on uranium handling framework. Uh, so hopefully those things can be overcome as times goes on here. Well, let's go back to just uranium market in general. I'd like to get your thoughts on where we are in the uranium market at this point, your view on the price of uranium and the supply problems that are before us. Maybe just talk about that for a moment. What we've seen in the last uh, five to seven years is, is real contraction in primary production. So far, that's been met with secondary supplies, you know, reselling some of their inventories. And that's been a real problem that seems to be coming to an end. So secondary supplies or, or stockpiles or inventories, whatever you will call them, they are finite. They are being consumed quite rapidly. What a lot of people don't understand, I guess, in the, in the uranium market is there's another step after primary mining of uranium, the conversion and enrichment. And what's happened with post-Fukushima, with Japan's reactors being essentially all offline, not only were they not requiring as much natural uranium, they were requiring less enrichment services. So that enrichment is a is a commodity that uh, and a process that people that do it uh, don't stop. So they have to keep their machines running. And so what what they're able to do is take that natural uranium that has about 0.7% U-235 in it and put energy into the system to produce uh, something that has about three and a half to 5% 235 uranium in it. And so what these enrichers do because they can't turn off their machines is essentially squeeze the feedstock that much more, like squeezing a little bit more out of a lime or lemon to get more juice just by applying more energy. So they essentially displaced the need for even more primary uranium supply. So as we see the uh, uranium, I guess the nuclear fuel side of things, there's more reactors, there's more demand for natural uranium, and there's more demand for enrichment services. So this secondary supply coming from enrichment, what they call underfeeding, is actually going down as well. So you've got a double whammy, so to speak, in that demand's increasing, inventories are down, and enrichment services are starting to increase on the demand side. So there'll be less underfeeding. So I think we're coming to a crux and, you know, on last week's uh, Cameco earnings call, I haven't heard CEO Tim Gitzel for Cameco that optimistic in 10 years. It's all pointing to utilities needing to start contracting. And indeed they are, but nobody knows the price. It's a really opaque market, even more so now, because a lot of these medium to long-term contracts that you've been, that people intimate about, uh, they're off market, so they're not. Uh, uh, there's no price discovery. No one's talking about price. But if you can read into what Cameco is doing by restarting Cigar Lake and McLean Lake Mill after the COVID shutdown, um, they need a certain. They wanted a certain price, uh, certainly north of forty dollars, and they must be getting it because they're turning it back on. So I think it's really come to a point where the utilities know they don't have as much inventory on hand and they need to start contracting a couple of years ahead of when they need it so the uranium can go on the yellow cake trail and go through the mining 
conversion, enrichment, and fuel fabrication cycle. So it's it's exciting times. The price really can't go anywhere but up because even to bring back some of the shuttered supply is looking like it needs $50. And our project, for example, we modeled it to produce 6 million pounds a year. Our break-even is, is south of $25 per pound. So we're right in that you know, lowest quartile, lowest 50% of the potential cost curve. We're sitting pretty and waiting. And yes, we're waiting for this uh, uranium legislation in, in Peru for transport and export of uh, yellow cake. We've been told many times it's, it's a few months down the road. Um, we understand it's, it's been drafted. It just hasn't been signed. And then with the political turmoil that's been affecting uh, Peru plus COVID, uh, hitting the country incredibly hard. Uh, it's it's actually sad. But anyway, uh, uh, things have been delayed. So uh, we're optimistic, certainly on the on the market side, on the legislation side in Peru, things are looking good. Yeah, certainly Peru's gotten hit pretty hard with COVID and, uh, of course, the political issues and just the fact that, you know, a, a lot of these countries in, in this region tend to run slowly and everything gets procrastinated frequently. So that's normal. But hopefully we can get some additional things progressed and done. And, you know, back to the main market, Ted, I, I think the, the chemical restart of, of cigar is, is really their selection of the lesser of two evils them not having that on and having to procure in the spot market wasn't working as they found out quite quickly in earlier this year. So I think that the cigar restart was really just a factor of, you know, look, this is our best option. We we don't like that option, but this is all we got because they're between a rock and a hard place. The utilities, uh, as you know, we're waiting for them to start recontracting in significant volume. The long-term contracting volumes over the last few years have been negligible at best. Well, let's move on. Let's talk uh, about jurisdictions that you see having the most potential going forward for uranium, Ted. And I just include the U.S. here with your thoughts. Do you see that the U.S. still has good potential for a strong return to uranium mining, or do you see that it's really mostly expended through past mining and has limitations due to regulatory red tape? I wouldn't say the regulatory red tape factors into uh most of the past producing and presently mothballed uh, uh, production centers, uh, Wyoming and Nebraska for their in-situ recovery deposits, they, uh, they're, they're all licensed. You know, they, they just have to turn the taps back on. The unfortunate thing relative to Kazakhstan, where they, they use a similar process for exploiting their uranium deposits, in-situ recovery, the cost is the is the issue with with those operations in in Wyoming and Nebraska. Um, they're small. They don't really move the needle as far as uh, production annual production. Uh, we're talking one to two million pounds of licensed capacity for two or three of their operations. Uh, Cameco has two mills, and there's one other one that's that's quite small. So to me. Going back to mining hard rock deposits to feed the Blanding Utah mill that used to be Denison's and now it's energy fuels. It's high cost mining. It's really selective, except for a few deposits that are licensed around the Grand Canyon. There won't be any more of those from, uh, or many more of those from some of the red tape legislation and, and that you speak of. But uh, I don't see the U.S. becoming a significant uranium producer again. 
they require a I'll, I'll use round figures, something like 50 million pounds a year. It's I'm I'm overestimating, but it's it's around 50. I think they can only get back to five to six, you know, and that's in a proper price environment. Yes, there's some new uh, hope, I guess, with with the 232 regulations and and the whole strategic stockpile conversation, sourcing preferentially U.S. uranium. Even though they they probably have a license capacity of something like 12 plus million pounds, I can't see it happening in the United States. There's only a handful of big uranium producing countries. And to come back to Peru just for a second, if Plateau was able to produce 6 million pounds a year, that would be about uh, number five or six on the on the the country scale of, of uranium production globally. So it really drops off from Kazakhstan, Canada, Australia. Then you start looking at Namibia, uh, which are things are relatively high cost, but also large production centers. And then you you start going into Uzbekistan. You know, Russia, you don't hear about much because their internal production stays internally. They don't really sell that. It's for their domestic use. It's not a great-looking production pipeline out there. Yeah, I agree. Lots of different issues, and I, until the price starts to recover, I think you'll have continually repressive uh, conditions to where there won't be a lot of options until you see a much higher price, and then all of a sudden everybody's attitude changes. So we've got that coming down the pipe. Well, let's move on here. Let's talk a little bit about recent news, Ted. And maybe you could speak to the lithium project Valchani a little bit, but there was a news release that came out from a media agency that talked about potential for the company to have partners or is seeking funding or has funding in part to develop the Falchani lithium project. Can you just talk about that for a moment? My understanding is that's an unfounded claim by the media but uh, can you just talk about what's going on there? And will the company have any news coming on this front, say, before the end of the year? I can say that the, uh, the, the article you're referring to is, is actually false. We do not have any secure funding, and it's doubtful we will be releasing much on that front before year end. You know, as a normal course of business, we're talking to all manner of people on the uranium side, on the lithium side, and on some of the uh, the potential byproducts from Falchani, uh, most notably the SOP. We've we announced uh, an interest from, from a fertilizer chemical company that wants to talk to us about either helping us technically or financially down the road to, uh, to see about, um, you know, sulfate of potash production as a byproduct from uh, from Falchani uh, lithium project. So yes, we we we've been talking to lots of people uh, uh, on 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 all the commodities. Um, certainly nothing nothing material to report. Um, you know, everyone is waiting in for uranium legislation for those that are interested in in the uranium side of our story. We're of course in the middle of this uh, legal and administrative process. On, on some of our concessions. And without that certainty, both on the uranium legislation and the concession question, both the company and any interested parties are, are taking a wait and see attitude. Um, you know, we've, as a company, our, our, our share prices 
suffered because of this concession issue and and we don't want to uh, uh, get into some highly dilutive partnership at this point because we believe even with the current you know we'll call it two-thirds of the Falchani resource that we do still control without question um, that project is uh, is a is a, an excellent standalone we did in our most recent PA for Falchani we we did the two scenarios the entire project and just what's on the Falchani concession leaving out what's on Okakasa 4 which is one of the affected concessions and and the the project is uh, is uh, is solid. So from a potential partner point of view, nobody really wants to. Well, they want to wait and see that that we what we're saying with the concessions and and the process we're going through and how we believe things will be resolved in our favor, either administratively or through the legal system that we handle that. And then I I can only imagine that that talks will ramp up with many p different potential partners, but nothing really that that article was corrected but it was also a similar interview was given to uh, a rival newspaper in peru the uh, and and it, it certainly didn't have anything like that you know we're basically we need eventually to come up with something on the order of 500 million dollars to build phase one of falchani and that's was stated and yes we are talking to partners or potential partners but the funding is not secured and uh and i don't see it happening in the next uh, month and a half appreciate the update on that ted and the clarification we'll we'll see what happens it looks positive and, and certainly the assets uh not even remotely close to being reflected in the valuation of the company take us to the concessions for a moment you brought that up um, can you maybe just update the audience on what the status is of the concessions. We know that some concessions came out listed at the first part of the month with the Ministry of Mines. Talk about that for a moment. Uh, what's the status and, and what do you guys see as a time frame to potentially resolve the issues? On the concessions, they were being uh, handled by two separate courts in Peru. We'll call it court five and court six and two different judges. And those court those cases have now been amalgamated into one case so all the concessions are now being administered in court six and we are seeking an injunction that we understand could be coming anytime but to stop the concessions from being awarded to anybody else because we have this legal challenge about that we paid the government as the branch of government that's responsible for handling concessions is a subordinate department to the Ministry of Energy and Mines called INGAMET. It's essentially their version of a geological survey that also covers mines, metallurgy, and uh, concession administration. So INGAMET has accepted that we paid our money, but they now have issue with how the receipts were attached to the individual concessions. So we'll see. That's playing out. Our injunction is potentially imminent, and then it will go through uh, continued legal process to uh, to reinstate those in, in, in our name and we're confident we've done everything according to their laws and regulations and constitution. So that's positive. On the administrative side, either one of the head of Ingamet, the Minister for Energy and Mines or and the Vice Minister for Mines, 
or the president. So those three individuals can get their legal teams to understand the whole situation, which we've done run through them many times. Unfortunately, we've had four or five different ministers for energy and mines. And now the third, the, the second uh, uh, president. Uh, and so those, those things keep stalling because of the, the turnover in, in personnel uh, in, in those heading those departments. So the administrative side, people understand our story. Uh, they understand it was uh, um, relatively egregious, wrong, but so far nothing's nothing's happened. And certainly COVID has basically shut down the government. And then when they did start coming back, they're working uh, half time at best. You know, Peru's a mining country, and their initial focus is it was not on on our concessions and our issues. It was on trying to get the mining uh, production back to in the country and and we see that that still hasn't really happened certainly not in the copper uh, side of the story it's uh, they're 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 not producing nearly what they think they should so we've been a bit of a a victim of timing with with the government churn and uh, and covid so but we're optimistic everybody knows our story in uh, in places of power and uh and and understand that that things were were mishandled at the Ingamet level, and we're we're confident on that side too. So, I I hope that answers your question. We're confident that we will be uh, our concessions will be reinstated without any uh, nonsense. It's just a question of of when, and of course we're hoping sooner than later. Yeah, it's been a perfect storm. There's no doubt, and the COVID issues hitting Peru extra hard. One of the worst hit countries in the area. Of course, the need to get the cash flow from these mines going as quickly as possible, because I, I don't think sometimes the audience, some of them don't understand that how really important mining is, mining revenues to the government. It's, it's a huge uh, cash flow for the government bottom line. So, but definitely a perfect storm of delay, I would say. So hopefully you guys can keep that going as, as quickly as possible and get that restored. I think that's a big part of a, of a valuation gap here that we were seeing the shares. Ted, talk about the two assets being very close to each other, but obviously distinctly different assets with Falchani obviously being lithium and, and Macusani being uranium, Falchani being the more advanced project and closer to possibly a development scenario. What is the company view on separating the assets to improve the value potential and to prepare for potential development of both projects? What's your thoughts on that? And, and what is the company looking at as a potential vehicle to separate the assets? So the the uranium uh, projects at Makassani, uh, they're they're geographically and geologically distinct from from Falchani's lithium project. Um, the the Falchani rocks are slightly older, uh, below the rocks that host the uranium. They're the youngest uh, volcanic rocks on the Makassani plateau. The the Falchani rocks are underneath. Uh, older, different, and there's absolutely no uranium. There's like less than 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 10 parts per million uranium in the in the in the Falchani lithium host rocks. Um, we also have to the west of where we first discovered Falchani, uh, actually right at surface outcropping uh, the Falchani rocks, I'll call them. So 
there's areas where there's no overburden, no cover, uh, and, and you get right into the Falchani Elysium rocks. So they're geographically and geologically distinct. As you rightly pointed out, the concept is to develop these projects separately. There's not much crossover on potential partners um, in, in, in lithium or in uranium. There's, there's very little crossover uh, for interested parties. And the investor base is, is, is quite different or can be quite different. So it make it does make sense to uh, to eventually separate these two projects into separate companies, um, and 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 let them have their own path ap after that. Um, I think the real catalyst for uh, spinning off we'll call it spinning off the uranium assets or separating the two is the Peruvian uranium regulations. You know, uranium production, yellow cake export and transport. That's one of the key catalysts for spinning it out. Another one would be a, a real increase in the uranium price due to contracting and, and a return to some long-term uranium contracting where there's a, a clear need and path and to find a home for our, our potential production. Those would be the catalysts that I see for, for doing that. It totally makes sense to uh, to separate the two uh, the two projects, and they do potentially have slightly different timelines, as you as you pointed out. The uranium requires the uranium market. The lithium, the market will be there by the time we well, we believe it'll be there by the time uh, Falchani could come into production. So uh, nothing hard and fast that we are going to do it, but it just makes total sense as you as you pointed out. Ted, maybe talk about just briefly about the the uh, prior to, of course, COVID and the concessions issue. You know, the company was working on a revised PEA for Macusani. Can you just speak to that now? Obviously, this is probably down on the to-do list, but when do you expect the revised PEA for Macusani to come out? And as part of that, do you guys have any field work drilling uh, planned for Macusani in the near future? Yeah, so on, on the Makassani uranium project, uh, one thing that it goes back to uh, to late 2013 um, and into 2014, uh, just as I was leaving Cameco, Cameco was uh, doing some leach studies. And bear in mind, they only had 34 million pounds of uranium resources. and some interesting work not only on the leaching and and you know they were they were able to produce uh on spec yellow cake um there's no deleterious elements but with with you know very low potential costs and they're in line with what the the, the makasani pea as it stands uh from 2016 is low cost potential they also did some what we call comminution concentration studies, where just simple screening and scrubbing of the Makassani uranium mineralized material, uh, because we can't call it ore yet, they showed that initial test, they could uh, essentially double the grade. So 
they could retain 80% of the initial uranium from the, the, the feed material in, in about half the mass. And so what, what, what was modeled in our base case as about 290 ppm uranium feed material, all of a sudden you're talking something uh, approaching 600 ppm. And that has a lot of positive uh, implications for, you know, capital costs. You need smaller uh, crushing and milling and everything else. And back end of the mill will be smaller because you're putting half the material through. So we've started uh, doing some some of these comminution tests, essentially redoing some, but also taking it further and 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 we're getting better results than than what that initial chemical uh, study pointed out to. So the idea is, first of all, we can bring in some of the lower grade satellite deposits that were not in the original PEA because we have 124 million pounds of resources. PEA only basically took the closest 70 million pounds and produced 6 million pounds a year for 10 years. So there was, uh, you know, that's including dilution, et cetera. Um, we'll be able, if, if this work is going, goes the way we're thinking it will, we'll be able to bring in some lower grade material and upgrade that to the point where it's exceedingly economic as well. We have no immediate plans to drill at the moment, but what I mentioned at the beginning of the discussion was the patchwork nature of the, the history of, of the Makassani Plateau with its fractured ownership. And I can tell from it, my experience with Cameco, our best deposit, Tantamaco, we were marching towards the southeast, towards the project boundary with Makassani Yellow Cape that was marching to the northwest. And what we've seen when we put this into 3D space, all in one coherent database, is that these two deposits are exactly the, on exactly the same elevation, and they should essentially coalesce. They are the same deposit, but we just don't have any drilling in between. So, so this is a focus, is, is looking in between existing, I guess we'll call them satellite, little smaller deposits, that we believe are actually joined up. So there's more uranium to, to find there. There's also 40, over 40 surface targets that we haven't even drilled yet. I guess some would say we're kind of like a, a, a northern pike. Once we saw something shiny, we were focused on that and we drilled off where we found uranium and we didn't bother looking too far afield anymore at some of these other surface targets uh, that, that are untested. So there's a lot more uranium to be found, but there's some drilled showings that were drilled by one of the predecessor companies that don't have any resources on them because the QAQC couldn't be proven and the drilling is a bit too widely spaced. So there's, there's a, lot of, uh, a lot of building blocks to increase the resources and that's only gonna help, help the, uh, the project. So yes, we, we're doing this comminution work, we're going to see how it impacts the potential operating costs and capital costs through a revamped PEA, um, coupled with some exploration and extension drilling in between known deposits and on the fringes, as well as looking at some of these new showings.
And Ted, talk a little bit more. What about the time frame? Once you guys get this new revised PEA out, what do you see as the path forward on both time frame and would you guys go to a pre-fees where you guys go to a DFS? What's the plan as you guys advance this and what do you really expect the time frame to be assuming that the uranium market uh, starts to move? What do you think there as far as, you know, if the uranium price is not an issue and we have COVID aside and concessions are resolved, what do you see as a realistic time frame to really get this thing to a level where you guys are ready to finance? I'd say that this the PEA, we're probably looking, uh, if there was no issue, it would take uh, four months because we've done an incredible amount of work on the on the uranium story over over its evolution. I think the latest PEA from 2016 is probably the if I count one of the internal chemical ones, it's probably the fifth uh, economic assessment with some engineering behind it um, that's been done on the on the uranium side. We we know a heck of a lot more. We've done uh, thousands of leach tests. Um, so so a PEA update um, with with looking at this uh, upgrading of the of the feed material. Uh, coupled with potentially changing from heap leach, which the base case was, to tank leach because uh, things happen a lot quicker and the, the Makassani mineralization processes so quickly and so inexpensively that uh, we should be able to get away with, you know, small tanks relative to the, the potential production. So it's going to have a positive impact. And I, I see that, you know, once we once we step on the gas being a, a four month max uh, issue. This is assuming we get the uranium legislation and and our uh, our communication work goes goes as well as, as as we're thinking it is. And then you're looking at pre fees, feasibility, another probably two years and that and that's gonna be a, some drilling obviously to uh, to upgrade the resource categories. Uh, right now, we're sitting with about 40% indicated and 60% inferred on the, uh, I'm using round numbers, on the uh, uranium resources. Uh, we need to get the indicated up to measured and uh, inferred into indicated and part of the part of the plan. And a lot of people commented on the amount of work we did for our PEA as being almost at the PFS level anyway. So we're not convinced that we necessarily have to stop at PFS. Uh, we can we can maybe accelerate things and and kind of blend into a a, a feasibility study. So I, I think we're looking at maybe uh, 18 months after that, give or take. So that's crude timelines, uh, assuming all the stars aligned, as you as you mentioned with the uranium price, etc. And Ted, you know, as we go here, the process to move into the permitting, do you see that happening in parallel to a definitive study or a feasibility study? Do you see that happening in parallel? And obviously with that two-year time frame, do you see that also the uranium framework within the country, the regulations gets resolved within that time frame? Do you see that really this two-year time frame is really everything that would be needed to get to a point to finance and start construction? I, I think that's achievable. I, I don't know how realistic the return of the uranium market in, in such a timely manner is gonna happen overnight, but uh, 
but it's doable. And, and, you know, we've, we've heard, uh, for the last year and a half that the uranium, uh, legislation, uh, would be in place within six months. We've now been told it's, it's less, you know, it's a couple months away at, at most. We understand that it's drafted and it's just hasn't been, uh, tabled yet. At the same time, you know, Peru has to, uh, you know, it's fine to have the regulations, uh, but they need to have the, the, a way of, of working with those regulations. And we're confident because they have a nuclear regulator already, they have a competent mines and energy and environment ministry, um, that it's not going to take much to add, you know, some, some, I guess, radioactive, uh, element understanding to, to the already existing system. And, and that's indeed what the government has told us on the re- legislation side. Originally, you know, back in 2009, people tried to initiate uranium uh, mining regulations and they initially wanted or thought that they'd have to essentially rewrite the Mining Act, uh, which has been shown by the ministry that it's not the case. So, so I think the timeframes are, are realistic if the stars were aligned. And we certainly believe, you know, presidential impeachments and uh, elections coming up in April, notwithstanding, uh, we're confident that the rules will will be in place, ideally by year end. But we've been hearing six months for a year and a half. So I just <laughs> point that out. Yeah, certainly. It's been delayed, there's no doubt. And I think the uranium market will certainly be there in the two-year time frame. But you would need a few things to to get resolved soon and, and get all these processes going to stay on a good path. But I think two years uh, for the uranium market would, would certainly be a much healthier condition. You know, in the uranium regulation in country, Again, you know, it's it's not it's not hard to borrow specification or regulations that have already been created by either neighboring countries, IAEA, and a number of others that have that information that is uh, readily available. So it's it's not like you need to reinvent the wheel. It's already here. You just need to take it and implement it. Which I think the implementation is the key for the country. Not necessarily writing the regulations; those already exist. So it's really about implementation at this point and just, you know, the formality of signing the documents is really what needs to happen. Let's move on here. What is your thought, though, on that, Ted, as far as them getting that done? Do you you really see that this gets done in 2021, Ted, or do you think they kind of keep kicking the can until, you know, kind of COVID's out of the way and and some of these political problems? It's hard to say because all today, uh, following the impeachment of the president, um, all of the ministers that were in the government have resigned. This, I just found this out just before we started talking. I'm not sure if it's in protest or if it's because the government's being dissolved, but they've all resigned. So <laughs> once again, we're faced with either having a new minister for energy and mines, or certainly the current one might get reinstated, but there's nobody at the head right now. So I'm certainly confident we'll have this regulations done uh, certainly in 2021. But I'm they've been they've been drafted and and to your point, the, the governments of of Canada, the United States, uh, have certainly been involved with helping with some of the regulate regulatory I guess scrutiny and and things. We we do know that we as a company have. Uh, pointed and provided International Atomic Energy Agency uh, 
best practices, a lot of which are already translated into Spanish. We've passed those along and, and there's been some positive dialogue there. We understand that the rules are drafted and they just need to, to be tabled and, and passed. And we don't see any impediments other than the obvious political turmoil and, uh, and, and COVID right now. So uh, I'm confident that, that we'll get this, uh, get this done. Ted, I want to come back to something you said earlier about the, the early exploration work. Um, on Falchani, you guys had, had hit some uranium up there when you guys were drilling out and, and delineating the lithium resource. Do you see that there's any need to follow up? Obviously, it wouldn't be critical right now as a, as a to-do list item, but do you guys see that that will be followed up? Or did you see that that uranium mineralization that was coexisting with the lithium did you see that that was any issue that really should be followed up on? Did you see that there might be any potential for expansion or is it just something that's not critical? What was your thoughts when you guys saw that? Well, if I can, if I can roll back to uh, October 2017, which is uh, when we first got access to this, uh, the Falchani area. And, and it was through a, a community uh, called Chaka Coniza that's uh, down in the south of our, of our, of our land holdings. And they had never really wanted us to come down and work. Um, and, and through the course of our normal business up in the north on the uranium projects that exist, the uranium resources, um, the communities all speak to one another. And, and Chaka Kuniza inquired to the town of Isavia and the people that run that place where we have our base of operations. And basically we're asking about those uranium guys, like, and they were told, yeah, no, we're good guys. We, we do the right things. We don't, we don't fool around. We don't uh, overpromise, and things are good. So the community actually came to us and said, how come you guys haven't come back and said you wanted to work down here? And we said, well, you always slammed the door in our face. So anyway, we went down there. Within a week and a half, we found uh, two large, we'll call it discontinuous, but essentially almost one or two square kilometers, two separate anomalies of surface radioactivity. So that's what got us to, we chose to, to drill at Falchani first. And what we found was some decent uranium within the top 50 meters of these volcanic rhyolites that host the uranium. Then there was a barren 50 meters. This is in the discovery hole, we'll call it. So hundred meters below, that's where the Falchani rocks start. So geologically distinct from the uranium rocks, but in this case below. And then we found these new rocks in November of 2017. And you know, we, we analyzed them because they're, they're essentially just white fine-grained glassy volcanic rocks. And it wasn't until we got the uh, geochemical results back that we said, oh, this has 3,500 ppm lithium in it because the, the, the rocks that host the uranium have about anywhere between 300 and, and 600 ppm lithium, Li, in them. So they're, they're slightly enriched by world standards, but not a deposit necessarily. Eh? So I was the CEO of, of Plateau Energy Metals at the time, and we, uh, we couldn't release those until we got them tested at another lab because I thought it was maybe a potential lab error where they added a zero because things went from 300 to 3,000, you know, PBM lithium. So anyway, the, the the second lab 
confirmed the, the initial results. And then we started going away from the, the uranium at surface rocks and looking for these lithium rocks because we, we have a lot of uranium, even though that got us into the area. So these, these radioactive anomalies that got us down to find Falchani, um, they're still there. So yes, of course, they're, they're among our, our, our top priorities for, for drill testing. They are a bit far away from, I guess, the existing uranium deposit, you know, potential production center. Uh, but uh, trucking across the plateau is, is not that difficult once you're up on top. So there's a lot of uranium left to be found. Um, I wouldn't say they're as high a priority right now as, as uh, you know, drilling off between our known existing deposits um, as far as, uh, you know, bang for the buck. Uh, but, but they're certainly in, in, in the mix. And let's talk about some of the technical merits for just a moment on the project. And, and really, maybe you can point out, if you see some, what are the key challenges to overcome with either of the projects, the technical challenges that you see as, as potentially coming down the pipe to reduce further risk, of course, and, and how you guys might address those. And then when it comes to the permitting side, what do you guys see as the most viable route to, for ease of permitting purposes, as far as you know, the processing, heap leach, most permittable project, and then of course, uh, the key challenges you see technically to overcome. Lithium in Peru is is considered a non-metal. It's kind of treated like uh, I guess we'll call it lime lime production. It's a, it's essentially it's a chemical process that that produces lithium carbonate. It's a bulk material. It's considered a non-metal in Peru. Um, so the permitting of, of operations for non-metals is uh, uh, way more streamlined and, 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 and short, shorter than, uh, than a, a, we'll call it a metal mine, be it uranium, copper, gold, anything um, considered a metal. So certainly Falchani would be uh, uh, quicker to permit um, you know we've been we've been told it's uh, instead of a two-year sort of environmental monitoring and permitting process once it's started we're already doing the environmental monitoring i must say on 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 the uranium and on falchani uh, in in the same environmental uh, assessment work that we're doing as far as monitoring and etc cetera, etc cetera. That that that's been going on for years, um, but we've been told that a non-metal operation looks like a six-month permitting window versus a two-year permitting window for a metal mine. So it gives you a sense of how fast things could go with Falchani. So we don't see permitting as being any kind of impediment, certainly for Falchani. Um, but because we know a heck of a lot more on the uranium projects. It, you know, from a processing, you know, we've, we've done thousands of, of tests, etc. At Falchani, yes, we've done a lot, but we don't have the same, uh, near the same amount of, of data on the processing. And because these are unique rocks that host Falchani, they're essentially a, a, a volcanic, fine-grained, glassy version, chemically, it's quite similar to uh, to pegmatites as far as the the parent magma that that these the, that became these rocks. 
but they're fine grained and glossy so they can be processed more cheaply. What we don't have as much information on is the actual processing side. We've chosen uh, warm acid, sulfuric acid leaching as our base case, but there's essentially all the other styles of processing that we've looked at this material leaches and it leaches quite well it's just a matter of understanding the the, the costs uh, you know the trade-off between capex and opex for some of these different processing methods that we've 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 tested but we don't have as much information on so i see i see that as being for falchani a key uh, item to to understand more and i won't call it a risk but an area we'll have to focus a bit more on is the processing of, of this Balchani material um, to understand the best option. We've, we've provided a, a profound story in our base case as far as potential operating costs and, and a scalable project with manageable capital costs uh, to, to, to become a globally significant potential lithium producer. So there's already a substantial case. We believe there's a lot of places to uh, improve. And we have not, in our PEA, have not considered any of the potential byproducts. So we've, we've started talking about sulfate of potash because these rocks contain 4% uh, potassium. We're already you know, crushing it up and leaching it and we know that 30 or 40% of the potassium can be is leached during our normal process. And we know we can get that off ahead of time before we produce our lithium. The lithium stays in solution. So we need to understand, okay, what would it take to put a little side SOP production, you know, crystallizer off, off the front end? And some of the other byproducts like cesium and rubidium, well, that's down the road, but we know it leaches. We know we can get it out. We just don't understand the, the cost implication. But, you know, it's exciting. We've managed to uh, catch the ear of some people who interested in linking mining and agriculture. Uh, certainly SOP has, has, uh, is all imported in Peru uh, and they have a healthy and growing domestic demand. So these are things that we're, we're, we're going to be working on, but they're only, they're only going to improve the, the Falchani story. Yeah, Ted, and talk about the uranium side. I, I think that that's, you know, Macusani is going to be a little bit more of a challenge, both in the on how you guys plan to process uh, and also getting that permitted, you know, as you guys go. But as you guys continue to move these, both of these projects through to definitive studies, maybe just talk a little bit about the current resources and, and how you guys see that being expanded or increased as you guys continue to, you know, do infill drilling and converting the resource categories into higher probability, you know, categories. Um, maybe just talk about that. And then maybe just for an example, um, what do you guys expect to see as far as when you guys make those conversions and infill drilling, what do you see as far as approximate costs to be able to get that done? Okay, so on the uh, uranium story, the deposits are not as predictable as at Falchani. Falchani is, you know, a lot of people have, have joked that it's it's kind of like a, a coal mine or a coal seam. It's predictable, both in grade, not necessarily in thickness, but 
it's 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 quite predictable Wh where it is it is and where it isn't it isn't so we're it, it won't take as much to convert or upgrade the resource categories at Falchani because to use mineral resource estimate terms in the search radius is a heck of a lot larger at Falchani meaning you can have wide, more widely spaced drill holes and i did a back of the envelope you know with with some science involved to convert all of falchani deposits indicated resources to measured and all of the inferred into indicated um i just for drilling i was looking at something on the order of three to four million dollars that's based on the fact that we have our own drill rigs uh, the company has four operable and two sort of for parts drills of our own and uh and the necessary staff uh when needed so things are a lot cheaper uh, than than if we were going a contractor route the contract rates in peru are essential for drilling are essentially similar to canada you're looking at something like a hundred dollars per meter just for the drilling uh, when you add in the analysis and everything else and the camp and all the the things that go along with drilling you know that can be upwards of 250 300 per meter we've had good success doing it all in for about 100 150 a meter uh, so substantial savings so it's you know we're looking at three to four million dollars for converting all of falchani uh upgrading all of falchani that's that's the sort of quantum we're talking about on the uranium side the deposits are are not as predictable there's a, a a bit more variability in grade uh, and thickness, and you you must uh, drill these a bit a bit more tightly. But when I looked at upgrading the indicated to measured, or at least a good part of it, because we're already sitting forty percent indicated and sixty percent inferred, um, I was looking at something on the order of probably five million dollars. The holes are shorter, but to convert all that resource, uh, upgrade all that resource, that, that was the quantum. So a bit more expensive, but um, it's, it's because there you, you need to drill more tightly and you also, but, but you have some savings because the deposits are, are, are within 100 meters of surface. Talk about, you know, Makusani and, and that particular area has a pretty good wet season, as most of us uh, know in this region. Is there any impact there as far as, you know, obviously there'll be infrastructure considerations for drainage and, and pumps and so forth uh, for making sure that things are dewatered. But uh, what's your thoughts on how this might impact some of the mining methods and more importantly, also a potential heap leach operation at Makusani? Yeah, so both projects are uh, estimate 4,005 meters, sorry, 4,500 meters elevation above sea level. Yes, there's a wet season, but it's, you know, you're, you're correct, but it, it basically affects the, uh, the lower elevations more with rain. Yes, we get a bit more up high, more often than not it's snow, but every month of every year that I've ever been to the Andes in Peru, uh, down in Puno, I've seen snow. So, it doesn't hang around it it melts during the day but um the rain it affects mostly the lower elevation so we weren't seeing much of a impact other than you know the obvious shipping down 
of, of and, and into getting reagents up to site and shipping product out um, would be the most impacted by uh, by the, the one big wet season. Um, up high, it, 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 it's not really an, an issue. On the uh, on the heapage processing side of things, we did do a lot of tests up on the uranium side, uh, up at altitude, right in sight, using the local water, uh, and our results for for uranium extraction were actually better than what we got in the lab and and mini uh, column tests we did in uh, in Lima. Uh, it just took a little longer because the ambient temperature is uh, is uh, lower, obviously at 4,500 meters than at sea level in 20 degree Lima. But the reactions are not oxygen dependent, so and and uh, and we actually got better recoveries. Uh, we're talking a couple a couple three percent higher recoveries uh, right at site than than uh, in Lima. So uh, we're we're not contemplating any any issues at, at those altitudes. And Ted, how about joint ventures? What what's your thoughts? I know that you know with Macusani certainly has a less of a of a capex involved from what we can see so far, but what's the company's thoughts on joint ventures with other companies for both projects? Does that remain to be on the table? Can we expect this as the preferred route? And then do you guys see the joint ventures as a good way to accelerate development of the projects? And then also what's your guys' standpoint on mergers and acquisitions at this point in the market? Interesting question. Um, you know, as a company, we're we're not, going to rule anything out you know we've we've certainly had discussions on on part potential partnerships and yes they range from joint ventures or investment at the project scale uh, for either project um, offtake type arrangements uh, royalty uh, investments uh, you know the the usual suspects uh, without any real preferential, I guess, path on where I see the uranium project probably has a better chance of, or joint ventures might be, have a higher chance of success on the uranium side if your partner was either an end user utility or a current uranium producer, just because of the, the whole opaque market side of things. I know when Paladin first started production out of Langer Heinrich in Namibia. Um, their marketing was basically non-existent. They, they chose to sell in the spot market uh, at, at the time and perhaps tied themselves too, too much to the spot market over time. But anyway, that's another story. But it was because utilities um, will not pay top dollar for an unproven uh, Companies' potential production. Uh, you have to prove yourself before you you get better contract prices. Um, so that's that's one reason why a potential partnership or offtake is probably the way it'll go in on the uranium side. And similarly on the lithium side, a lot of the production is tailor-made to the end user. So it makes most sense for the battery production companies or other end users to partner with a potential producer or or you know we'll call it near-term development company once we're there 
because they they need to understand in depth what the what the chemistry of the product looks like and all the steps in between. So um, I, I see that more on a invest in the project to help finance production as opposed to a joint venture per se. Ted, talk about Ian Stocker for a moment and his how instrumental he was to advancing this project during his time uh, with Plateau. Can you just speak to your relationship with him and how instrumental he was in, in getting the project where it is today, just before Alex came in? I don't know how much time we have, but I'll try and be as brief and succinct as possible. So when I was with Cameco, I sat on opposite sides of a, a partnership table with Ian Stalker in 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 uh, Niger and in Argentina, um, he was he was with the junior that Cameco was partnering with, and we were on the technical committees and management committees for these these uh, partnerships. When when I when I was uh, when I left Cameco, it wasn't because I left on my own. It was uh, two or three years after post Fukushima and. Uh, and my focus was all about growth, you know, new projects, new opportunities, uh, sort of helped a, a bunch of big acquisitions for Cameco, uh, mostly in Australia. And they didn't need to grow anymore as far as their project pipeline. So, so Ted was let go. And within two weeks of sitting at home contemplating having a summer off for a change instead of being all over the world looking at things. Uh, Ian Stalker phoned me and said he had heard and we started working together on a little junior called Azincourt uh, Uranium, now Azincourt Energy. And Ian was the chair, I was the CEO and immediately we went about talking to Cameco to get their Peruvian assets. Uh, that took about six, eight months of back and forth. Uh, we did get them for a fire sale. And then we merged in with the existing Peruvian player, Makasani Yellow Cake, that now became Plateau Energy Metals. Um, Ian and I worked uh, from 2014, well, 2013, all the way through till, uh, till he, he left around the same time that Alex mm -hmm. came in a, a little bit later. But Ian basically... He's a, a processing specialist who fancies himself a geologist, but but he's not. Um, and we worked extremely well together. And when we were going through the, the uranium PEA and resource update and everything else, once we put the companies together, um, he really drove the, uh, the, the, the PEA process. And similarly, when we found Falchani, and yes, it became more of an exploration play again, we immediately, because of Lawrence Stefan, the current COO at, at, at Plateau Energy Metals, and Ian, essentially we started leach testing of that material right away, which really accelerated our, our ability to put out a resource because you need, these are unique rocks and you need to uh, prove the potential for some future economic uh, viability uh, to satisfy 43101 resource estimates so that was that Ian Ian and Lawrence were instrumental in that and and so I I think that's why we were able to uh, take Falchani from discovery in November of 2017 through to first resource and then essentially doubling that resource 
by by March 2019, so 18 months, and then putting out the the, the PEA as soon as we uh, did, just because of the, the the groundwork that Ian and Lawrence and I put put together right away. You know, not too many people will find a new rock and start processing it right away. You, they normally we normally study it first and then think about processing and and so we we unfortunately or fortunately put the, the cart before the horse and and looked at processing and now we're just starting to understand the i guess the petrography of these lithium rocks better lithium is one of those well it's an extremely light element it's the lightest known metal and it's hard to analyze in situ so we've had to do some laser ablation icpms to study the where the lithium is in these in these new rocks and now we understand it's in this essentially volcanic aluminosilicate glass there's no or very little actual lithium minerals and that's why we're able to process it just using warm sulfuric acid or the other methods that that we've tried but it's a it's a heck of a lot less expensive than than most hard rock lithium projects that produce from spodumene lipidolite or 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 hectorite clay so i think ian was instrumental in in accelerating things and 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 really being shrewd with our uh contractors for the various peas yeah certainly his successes in the business and really pushing things forward i think is uh he certainly proved that on numerous occasions with various companies well, as you know, Ted, the uh, company has about a 22 million Canadian market cap as we talk and remains substantially discounted. What would you say to potential new and even existing investors who are looking to establish and increase positions with Plateau Energy? Well, I'd say that we're confident that the concession issues will be returned in our favor and will be behind us hopefully soon. There will be uranium legislation in place in Peru, and this, you know, coupled with improving market in uranium, and uh, you know, the future's bright for for lithium is like no other commodity at the moment. Eventually, that we have two world-class projects. If I may say that, we're talking low capex, low opex projects. There are basically two paths, uranium, lithium, and, and all the byproduct potential that we have at, at Falchani. The company's made no secrets and, and you know any astute investor can see that the idea of splitting these two companies based on their potential partners and investor base makes most sense. So these are two great projects um, that will only get better the more we understand them. On the uranium side, there's no shortage of areas to increase resources. We already have a, essentially 124 million pounds of resources and, and this potential upgrading through scrubbing and screening is only going to make that project get better on the CapEx OpEx side. And on Falchani, if we're understanding, you know, the, the leaching and the processing options that we have much better, that will only improve things. There's optimizations, sure, but the byproducts, co-products are, uh, are, are, are only going to enhance the value of, of Falchani. So I'd say it's a great time and we're excited. We just need to get this concession issue behind us. Ted, and the best way for the audience to reach out to you and the company? 
Well, certainly there's there's links on our website, uh, dranergymetals.com, uh, to get in touch. Alex is uh, our CEO. His his email is there on all the presentations. Uh, mine is essentially the same, uh, Ted at PlateauEnergyMetals.com. Um, always more than happy to field uh, questions and queries. Our investor relations corporate secretary, Pam, is notoriously diligent at monitoring the, web, the email web link uh, and passes things along when she can't answer them to to the technical or, or financial side of the company. So yeah, reach out if there's any uh, questions. We're more than happy to, to answer. Well, Ted, really appreciate you taking the time going over all the issues and going through the company. And thanks again for the update. Appreciate you coming on the show and looking forward to progress and to keep up the efforts. Thanks a lot, Andrew. It's been a pleasure meeting you virtually and uh, and, and talking with your audience.